0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries, and our teacher is Todd Tolls, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the great commission. Let's listen in now as Todd talks Bible.
1: So last week, we started talking about a future worldwide persecution of Christians. Are there any indications of that happening in our lifetime? And if so, how do we prepare for it? Let's talk about those questions and more coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles. I'm the director of Church Discipleship Ministries. And in our Bible study in the book of Revelation, we are in the middle of a discussion talking about the future worldwide persecution of Christianity. And we looked at what the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all had to say about this, along with our primary text in Revelation chapter 6. Today, I want us to look at any warning indications that this might happen in our lifetime, and most importantly, I want us to talk about how we can prepare for a future worldwide persecution if it does happen in our lifetime. But first, let's stay in context with this discussion, and let's read the passage that we're talking about. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God, and for being faithful in their witness. They called loudly to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge the people who belong to this world for what they have done to us? When will you avenge our blood against these people? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters Their fellow servants of Jesus had been martyred. Now, let's look at what's going on in the world today. Because with each seal, I've been trying to see are there any warning indications, any seeds of this sin uh, beginning to flower and, and, and show up in the world today. Because again, remember, these seals are not God's judgment upon mankind. He is restraining the our sin but when he cracks the seals it's allowing our sin to run its full course and it's evil our evil hearts preying on each other that's causing all of this destruction that we see in the seven seals so are there any warnings or indications little seeds that we may begin to see germinating that indicate the time is near for some of these things well i think quite possibly Let's talk about 9-11. Right after 9-11, 2001, after that horrible terrorist attack, you started seeing a lot of political pundits and newscasters and everybody uh, in the press talking about how fundamentalism was bad, whether it be Islamic fundamentalism or Christian fundamentalism. And they started linking together fundamentalist Christians with muslim terrorists now that was shocking to me and also just just bad all the way around first of all when a christian talks about being a fundamentalist that used to be a good thing that used to be saying we believe in the 10 fundamentals of the christian faith and we will uh fellowship and work with anybody else uh, that believes in those 10 fundamentals uh And not get in an argument over the minor points of doctrine that some denominations have. In other words, we're going to stick to the essentials, the basics, the 10 essentials of, of being a Christian. In other words, that God is real and he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible is our authority. And in the original manuscripts, it was, you know, perfect. He, He didn't make mistakes when the Holy Spirit told people what to write. Uh, The virgin birth, the physical death of Jesus on the cross, and the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus to show that our sins have been paid for, on and on and on. These are just a few of the ten fundamentals, or what we call now the essentials of the faith. And why do many of us not use the word fundamentals anymore? Because of this. Our society changed. And whereas they used to understand clearly that being a fundamental Christian meant you were sticking to the basics and trying to have fellowship with all other Christians and not divide over minor views and doctrines that a lot of denominations divide over. That used to be a good thing, and the press used to understand it. But now, whether they're doing it on purpose or their hearts have just been hardened, I don't know. But now they look at fundamentalists. Christians as being bad, just like fundamentalist terrorists from the Muslim religion. So I use the word essentials now. I believe in the 10 essentials of the Christian faith. That's just one sign that things in our society started shifting against Christians. That was almost 20 years ago. But there's more indications of persecution beginning to uh, sprout in our society. If you remember this book I talked about last session, Damon's Vickers' book, The Day After the Dollar Crashes, The Day After the Dollar Crashes, published in 2011. And in that book, he talks about the one world government and his push and belief that that's the way we need to go so that we can continue to make money. And he talks about it in the beginning of the book about how he was trained as a youth in Buddhism and that is why he has the insights to be able to say the way we need to go now. And on page 66, he begins what his views are on how religion, or I should say Christianity, if you read Between the lines, it's clearly talking about Christianity, but how religion should relate to the one world government that he's pushing in this book. On page 66, he says this, The truth about religion is that much of religion is based on myth. We must move past that. We must begin to think for ourselves. Honor truth and not fantasies. If our religion does not promote compassion, if it does not include all life in that compassion, then our religion should be discarded. Right there, he is saying, look, If the religion doesn't meet certain standards, it should be discarded. And he's kind of implying that if we start separating between people and saying only certain people go to heaven, it should be discarded. Now, you say, I might be reading too much into it. Well, no, let me read on. Page 144, you'll see how he's emphasizing this even more clearly. Page 144, Vickers writes about the new world order and he calls on this new world order, what he likes to call the central government, he calls on it to be, quote, tolerant toward religious organizations and beliefs and not interfere with spiritual practices unless they exhibit violence or intolerance or interfere with the rights of other living beings. So here he is saying clearly, that a one-world government will have a one-world religion, but it's going to follow his ethos and what he believes is an ethic that should happen, where we're all united, where all life is considered sacred. And then he's just going to go on, and he says, if there's any intolerance, then that religion should be discarded. Now, the Christian religion falls in that camp. You see, we are what a lot of people today call an exclusive religion. What does that mean? It means we say that only those who believe in Jesus are going to heaven, because that's what the gospel teaches. Only those who put their faith and trust in Jesus as their personal savior will go to heaven. Not those who follow the teachings of Buddha, not those who are Islamic, no, Muslims, no none of those will go to heaven because they don't believe in the one true God, this one true Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. And because we say that, they say we are being exclusive, that we are excluding people from heaven and that we're being intolerant of other people's religions. Now, that's not being intolerant. That's just saying the truth. I'm not going to... uh, go to war with someone or get mad at someone because they have a different religion than me? No, of course not. But neither am I going to sit there and say all these false religions are okay, and they're just as true as the one true religion, because that's not the case either. The truth is there's only one way to heaven. Jesus himself said that, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. In John chapter 14, the, verse, the verses 1 through 6, he says that. So there's nothing wrong with saying these religions are false, that they're lies from the enemy, and that the one true religion is following Jesus, because that is true. And we as Christians must stick to the truth. But because we do that, when a one-world government appears, that will be fuel for the fire to come after Christians and start persecuting them. Now let's go on. This philosophy that Damon Vickers espoused in his book, The Day After the Dollar Crashes, has been followed by many Democratic governors lately with because of the COVID-19 shutdown and been basically violating a lot of Americans' First Amendment rights. How do we know this? Because they're saying they can't go to church and worship. And what is the reason they give? The same thing here. They're saying you're interfering with the welfare, the rights for other people to be safe from this virus. And so they are using that reasoning that Vickers wrote in his book and others have espoused throughout the years. They're using that reasoning as saying it's okay to limit someone's freedom because you might be putting someone else's health in jeopardy. Even though you may never see that person because they don't go to your church, they're using that as a reason to shut down worship in a lot of the states, still because of the COVID-19. So we've seen more and more of this this seed beginning to germinate, The seed of persecution against Christians beginning to germinate. And that's one of the reasons why I think we're closer to these seals being cracked than we realize. Let's go a little bit more practical, a little bit more recent. During the summer, think about all the riots. And they began to start targeting churches. Many, many churches were attacked and vandalized. And you don't hear a lot of that on the news. But they weren't just burning down businesses, but they were vandalizing a lot of churches too. On June 22, 2020, Sean King, a leader of the Black Lives Matter movement, publicized his demands that the rioters tear down any religious statues that depict Jesus with European features, since such depictions are racist and are a form of, and I quote, a form of white supremacy. Now, I'm not saying these statues are accurate. No one knows what Jesus looked like. Jesus was a Jew that lived in the Middle East. And so he was having the the traits of everyone around him that was Jewish. I don't know what he looked like. No one knows. There's no pictures. There's no photographs. But to sit here and say, because you don't like the way someone portrayed him in a statue and tearing it down, that has nothing to do with race. It is because you're going after Christianity. Deep down, the enemy has fooled you, and he's using you to set the stage to go after Christianity and to start persecuting Christianity. And every time someone says things like this, it just opens the door wider and wider for more destruction to happen. And we started seeing that also with this. After that statement, about a month and a half after that statement, on August 1st, 2020, a reporter's video shows the Portland rioters burning Bibles as one of the things they were protesting against, as one of the causes for all the evil in America, the Holy Bible. So it's evidently okay to start persecuting Christians, we see, as long as it, they, it disagrees with something you believe in. And that means politics, too. Now, I'm not one to get into politics, and I'm not going to push how you should believe or vote in politics, but I do want to point out how there's been a lot of persecution from people towards religious groups because they don't agree with someone's politics. Keith Olbermann, a failed news and sports announcer, on October 10th, 2020, just a couple of weeks ago, he called for anyone who supports Trump to be prosecuted and convicted and removed from our society. Now, honestly, everybody knows, we talk about it in all the political discussions and the demographics of who's going to vote for who. Everybody knows that a lot of evangelical Christians are going to vote for Trump. That's out there, the polls are out there, this is common knowledge. So, honestly, Oberman was saying that even Christians should be prosecuted, and I'm quoting here prosecuted and convicted and removed from our society because they support Trump. That is a huge seed that's beginning to germinate and setting the stage for future, future Christian persecution on a worldwide basis. And again, this started coming to fruition. Every time they say something, It, it, it it's almost as like uh, begatting a child of destruction. Uh, they break open that door a little bit, and then more worse things happen. And the same thing happened here. 15 days after Oberman said that, on October 25th, and at the time that I'm filming this video, uh, this would have been yesterday, Sunday, October 25th, 2020, a rally of Jews for Trump was attacked by a large crowd of Antifa terrorists who first attacked the cops, broke through their police lines, and then attacked these Jewish people, all because they were expressing their political views. And this happened up in New York, where there has been a lot of uh, pushback from the Jewish community because the mayor is not letting them meet in their synagogues. So this is going on. There is a rise of religious persecution in this nation, and the vast majority of it is being targeted towards Christians. Finally, it's not just in America. It's spreading all across the world. It has been that way for a long time in the Middle East and, and in some Muslim-led countries in Africa. We know this is history. But even in France, which is supposed to be such an enlightened country, anti-Christian attacks have risen Two hundred and eighty-five percent in France since two thousand eight. So just eleven years, because this this data goes from two thousand eight to two thousand nineteen. So in just eleven years, the attacks on Christianity has arisen two hundred and eighty-five percent. So yes, the seeds of persecution have been planted. They're beginning to sprout, and it is something that I encourage you to keep your eyes on, because these seals could very easily be cracked in our lifetime. And this potential of evil, once those seals are cracked, the restraint will be gone, and this potential of evil will be unleashed, and it could happen in our lifetime. So, that leads us to our final topic today. How to prepare for worldwide persecution? How can you get ready for it now, just in case it happens sometime in the future? I mean, it very well may happen in our lifetime. I hope it doesn't. I want to grow old and see my grandkids grow old. I want to see that. But we don't need to be living in a dream world. And we don't Need to be hiding our head in the sands, and we sure don't want to be coming with this false teaching that because we're Christians in America and we're a godly nation, that we won't ever have to face persecution. That's just not true. The one thing Jesus promised us was that we would face persecution. He said that to the disciples in the Gospels, throughout the Gospels, they understood that they would face persecution. So for us to sit here and as Christians in America and say we will never have to face that, it's just foolish and I think rather arrogant. So whether Jesus is coming back soon or not, I don't know. Only the Father knows. But one thing is for sure. Jesus doesn't have to come back for us to face persecution in one nation. We could easily face persecution in America and Jesus not come back yet. It may just be the course of American history before our society collapses here in America, just like it has happened in other nations throughout the world. But I think, based on all the other little seeds of sin that we're seeing germinate with all the other seals and the potential that is there, I think we better start facing the realization that it's very possible that we may live to see these seals broken And live to see a worldwide persecution. And that being the case, how can we prepare now so that we will be strong and that we won't walk away from our faith when it happens? Well, let's look at some scripture and take some advice from what the Holy Spirit has told the apostles to write to encourage us about persecution. First Peter four, starting in verse one. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you are willing to suffer for Christ, you have decided to stop sinning. And you won't spend the rest of your life chasing after evil desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. Now here, Peter gives us two truths to live by. Number one, Jesus suffered... He had to face persecution, so we need to arm ourselves with the same viewpoint, that we will face persecution. And then the second thing he points out is, look, if you're willing to suffer for Christ, then that means you have conquered your sinful temptations. Your sinful temptations. And you say, well, how can that be? We'll always face sin and temptations, yes. But if you get to the point Well, you're willing to die for Christ or to suffer physically for Christ, then that means you're doing it now because you're willing to give up the temporal pleasures of sin for the cause of Christ. That's the same thing. It's the same commitment. As a Christian, if you are willing to follow what God teaches and to live a holy life as is instructed in His Word, then that's the same commitment of you giving up physical pleasure so that you can do what God wants, the will of God. And with that attitude, then you will also be willing to go all the way to your death because you have already decided long ago that to live for Christ is your top priority and that your welfare comes second. And that's what Peter's saying here. If you're willing to die for Christ, then the end result of that, a fringe benefit of that, if you if you will is being willing to walk away from sin and live a pure holy life. Step one is resolve now to stand firm then. In other words, get on your game face now that you're going to stand firm then. But step two, repent of your sinful passions. In Galatians five twenty four we read this: Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful natures to his cross, and crucified them there. If we are living now by the Holy Spirit, let us follow the Holy Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So, it's saying right there, start living by the Spirit. You know, in Galatians, it talks about how we will face temptation all the time, that every day you're going to be Faced with living in the flesh or living in the spirit but he says look repent of your 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 sinful passions don't go that way walk the way of the spirit because if you keep walking the way of sinful nature you're making yourself weak and 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 you're hardening your heart and you run a risk of walking away from the faith when persecution comes so steps to make sure you're strong for persecution." Number one, resolve now to stand firm then. Number two, repent of your sinful passions. And number three, read and study your Bible and serve in some kind of ministry. Why do that? Because you need to get your roots down deep and strong into God. And people who are serving in ministry and know their Bible... Are a lot stronger in their faith. They own their faith, so to speak. And that's what you want. You want to take ownership of your faith and let it be an active part of your life. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the four soils. In Luke chapter 8, verse 13, he says, The rocky soil represents those who hear the message with joy. But like young plants in such soil, their roots don't go very deep. They believe for a while but they wilt when the hot winds of testing blow. Did you catch that? He says that these young plants that represent Christians in uh, this rocky soil, this rocky soil represents Christians and they don't have deep roots, just like plants that are planted in a rocky soil, and that these Christians don't have very deep roots, and that they believe And he uses the same word, pistis, that is used in the book of Ephesians, for by grace you are saved through faith, through pistis. So he's using the same word for saving faith. These people believe, pistis, they have a saving faith for a while, but they wilt when the hot winds of testing or persecution come. That's because they have shallow roots. You know, brothers and sisters, This truth here is the reason I became a pastor. I see in our society in America so many Christians who have shallow roots, and I'll get into that later, but we have shallow roots because we have not followed the the biblical model for Christianity. We're all into the mega church and the big show. We want to go to places that don't have any accountability towards us, don't require us to do anything, just to show up and hear great worship music, which there's nothing wrong with. I love that kind of music. But to hear this great music and walk away feeling good, and we never serve, and we never study the Bible, and we never read it. And we've gone over this before. We've talked about the stats. And that's why Christians are so shallow in their roots. And if we want to stand during that time, we've got to be strong. And so I felt like God was saying, you need to be become a pastor. And that's why I started Church Discipleship Ministries, to help Christians grow and have deep, strong roots in their faith. So that way they'll be strong. And when the persecution comes, they won't wither and die. I don't want any Christian to walk away from Christ when bad times come. But the key is to have strong roots now. And that's what I try and do train people, and help people to grow in Christ. Now, I want to tell you something. and Pastors, I'm talking to you. If we want to start analyzing why there's so many Christians in America that don't have strong roots, and why so many Christians are at risk to walk away from their faith when the persecution comes, then we need to man up and say the truth. It's our fault pastors. It's our fault. The vast majority of pastors in America have failed at three critical areas. Number one, we have failed at discipleship. See, we teach some theory about the Bible, very shallow theory, because we only have 20-25 minutes on a sermon on Sundays, and we don't want to get too deep because we'll chase people away from our mega church. But we do teach some theory in Sunday school and small groups and life groups, whatever you want to call it but we don't do any practical. And true discipleship needs to be some of the theory, the book knowledge, the head knowledge, and the practical. Not only do you need to explain what the gospel is to them, but you need to help them to learn techniques on how to share their faith and lead others to Christ. Not only should you talk about the spiritual gifts a Christian can have, like teaching and and prophecy and preaching, and all these other spiritual gifts, encouragement, whatever they are. But you need to also give us some practical helps on how to put these into practice. They may have the spiritual gift of teaching, but you need to show them how to lay out a lesson plan, how to conduct a class. These are things that are practical knowledge that we are not passing on. So we are failing in discipleship. Oh, we're talking about discipleship now, don't we? All the mega churches are talking about you know discipleship that's the buzzword now, but all they're doing is meeting together with two or three guys and reading a devotion in the bible and It's the same shallow drivel that's always been. no real practical training is going on, and that's what modeled uh Christ used for the disciples. He used practical training, and they did in turn train others with these practical ways of how to do things. The second thing pastors have failed at is empowerment. We want the believers to be sitting on the pews, don't we? We don't want them in their own ministries. We don't empower them. We want them some serviette because most pastors in America are Nicolaitans, and they don't want the people of God to be empowered to serve God because that threatens them. That threatens their power and hold over them. And really and truly, it threatens the big mega bucks that come into the mega churches. But Christ designed it different. He wants every believer to be empowered through the power of the Holy Spirit and to know his Bible and to know how to do practical things to share the gospel and to teach others and other practical training so that we are empowered to go out and and be an effective minister to the world. That way, when the persecution comes and we scatter all to the four winds, we can lead others to Christ and disciple them. But it's not happening in America today because pastors have failed. The third area pastors have failed at is that we don't teach true theology. We have taken the message of Christ and says it doesn't fit our uh, predisposed viewpoint on theology we ignore what it says and we teach false teaching namely we keep saying once a person's saved they're always saved we say there's no way they can reject christ and that's not what christ said three times in the gospels just talking about in future events he talked about you have to have a faith that endures then he talks about in luke 8 with the parable of the four soils, how some people will walk away during persecution because their roots are shallow. We ignore these truths and we keep coming up with this man-made idiom that means nothing. Once saved, always saved. That's not true. You are only saved as long as you believe in Jesus. As long as your faith continues, nothing can take your salvation away. Not the enemy, uh, not you by stumbling into sin a little bit. As long as you keep your faith in Christ and repent and keep going, keep your faith, you're saved. God will never reject you. He will never kick you away. As long as you believe in him, you are saved. But to say that and then say no one can quit believing is just not true. I have seen people who believed and they quit believing and walked away. And Jesus himself says in the last days, it will be a huge temptation for people to walk away. that The love of many will grow cold but those who endure to the end will be saved. And so we need to teach the proper theology. And we also need to teach that it's time for Christians to live a holy life. See, we've created a perfect storm, pastors in America have, and it's wrong. and We're going to have to pay the price for it, and God's going to discipline us for it. On one hand, we say, oh, once saved, always saved, which isn't true. And then on the other hand, we said, oh, well... You know, we all sin. There's nothing you can do about it. You'll always have to sin because of your sin nature. And that, too, is a lie. With the power of the Holy Spirit, we can resist sin. Read Galatians 5 again. It says that you have a choice to walk in the flesh or walk in the Spirit. And I just read how he said in Galatians 5. I'll read it again. Galatians 5, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ have nailed their passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. If we are living now by the Holy Spirit, let us follow the Holy Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And later on in Galatians, it says, if you walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the deeds of the flesh. So we have to walk in the spirit because every time we give in to sin, yes, we'll always be tempted. We have that sin nature, so that temptation will always be there. Paul said, our lives will never be free from that choice. But That doesn't mean just because you're tempted, you have to give in. I may be tempted to rob a bank, but I don't have to go do it. No, with the power of the Holy Spirit, I can reject temptation. And as long as we don't teach that to Christians, we're allowing them just to keep being wrapped up in their sins, and it's going to harden their heart and make them weak, So that when the time comes for them to stand up strong because of persecution and still stand firm in their testimony for Christ, many of them will walk away. And brothers and sisters, you pastors out there and you teachers who are teaching different and not preparing your people, God will hold you accountable when these people walk away. You must teach the truth. A person's faith must endure. And that we must live holy lives because that's what makes us strong and more effective. And we have the power to live holy lives through the Holy Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the deeds of the flesh. Teach it, brothers, and teach them practical ways to share their faith. If you don't do proper discipleship and you don't teach them the true theology and you don't empower them to go have a ministry with people that they know, then you are failing them as a pastor. Well, I got off on a tangent there, but I think it's important for us to look at that. There's one final and I think most important thing for us to remember when faced with persecution. Not only should we resolve now to stand firm then, to prepare now mentally that we won't give in, Secondly, we should repent of our sinful passions so that we'll be more strong and have deeper roots. Uh, The third thing is we need to read and study our Bible and get involved in the ministry, again, to strengthen those roots and get mature in Christ and be more strong. But finally, and most importantly, I think, when you as a Christian are facing Christian persecution, facing imprisonment, or being executed for your faith, remember the love god has for you that's right remember god's love paul writes one of the most beautiful passages in scripture in romans chapter 8 and he talks about god's love for us and this is in romans 8 starting in verse 31 let's read this together what can we say about such wonderful things as these If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't God, who gave us Christ, also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Will God? No. He is the one who has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? Will Christ Jesus? No, for he is the one who has died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of highest honor next to God, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or cold or in danger or threatened with death? Even the scriptures say For your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death came and life came. The angels came and the demons came. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, you see, brothers and sisters, Nothing can separate you from God's love. He didn't promise us a rose garden, but he did promise that even if we face persecution, he'll love us and he'll be there with us. Nothing can separate us from his love. And if you stay faithful to him, I guarantee you, as you go through persecution, he'll be right there with you, comforting you, strengthening you, and you will feel his love in a more tangible way than you ever have before. And that is something that can be a huge consolation, a huge encouragement, and a huge source of strength to face persecution, Canaan, To know you'll feel God's love like never before. That truth, something like that, can make you willing to die for Christ, can't it, if the time ever comes. And I hope, if that time ever does come, you stand firm, and you do die for Him. And then, you'll be like all the apostles and so many other Christians throughout the last 2,000 years who did likewise. And they all are in heaven saying, it's worth it. It's worth it. Endure. And go all the way to the end for your Savior. So, if the worldwide persecution comes, Will you die for Christ? I hope so. Get yourself ready now to do the right thing then. And until next time, keep your eyes to the sky and read your Bible.
0: Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.